MC podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. In this episode, we're going to continue to explore communication of science and where maybe the very dry, impersonal scientific style sometimes lets us down. So with Alex, we talked about art and sort of the emotional response. And Don also mentioned in his interview the importance of storytelling and that actually it's a it's a skill for public engagement and it's a skill that a lot of scientists do possess. But it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's uh, difficult to wield, I suppose is the right term. I've been thinking about storytelling. I think we can talk about the way in which Deep Sea is portrayed or disseminated to to others and similarities with other scientific disciplines because I think we shouldn't ever draw a ring around deep sea science and sort of protect us from all these other things. I think there's a lot to be learned by looking at other disciplines. In this particular case, let's talk about the other chthonic, which means relating or to or inhabiting the underworld. No, but screw it, right? So if you think about geosciences, the subterranean geosciences, they had similar issues, right? So deep sea is not the only scientific discipline that's had to deal with difficult and changing public perceptions and how the storytelling has to evolve with that. So the subterranean geosciences had to also accommodate cultural and metaphorical perspectives of, of the public, I guess. Right. So if you think about how you go back a hundred years or so, you have the whole sea monsters, you have this idea that things find neutral buoyancy in midwater, and then this is this whole spooky thing that no one really understands. It was the same when you go underground as, as when you go under the sea. Right. So the subterranean had this sort of similar primordial sense of darkness combined with opportunities for commercial enterprise, which is what people, you know, mining essentially, like tin mining in Cornwall and that kind of stuff, people started to go to go underground. So then you had this weird transition between the weird and the, we can make a lot of money out of this. Interesting push and pull there. Yeah, I, I, it was described as being an era of dystopian dread and utopian dreams. It's kind of like the archetypal monsters dwelling in the deep, right? You've got these pre-industrial geological endeavors such as mining i suppose and they had to appease the supernatural when this first started going on the ground and you had goblins and dwarfs and they were known as tommy knockers so there were all sorts of these strange ghosts and spirits that you had to appease at the peril of both the miners and mineral production so if you wanted to if the miners were to operate safely you had to keep the deities happy and if you wanted to actually make a lot of money you also had to keep them happy strangely maritime yeah i feel like all dangerous jobs sort of breed superstition and you need anything to make you think oh i'm, I'm gonna come home from this you know i've i've done the ritual and now i'm gonna be okay yeah even that line the geosciences world has that moved into the industrial era that sort of sublime dread of displeasing the spiritual deities kind of evolved into a I guess a reverence in the face of significant resource potential, because suddenly you're just making a lot of money by pulling a lot of stuff out of the ground, right? So that fear kind of, that fear of the Catholic realm suddenly had more monetary value than it did spiritual. But then you go 100 years later, and you're looking at a similar sort of way in which we've kind of ditched that idea of there are no sea monsters out there coming to get us. We don't need to appease, you know, the, the gods of the ocean or the, you know, like things from Greek mythology and so on. We're in a similar position now because you have things like deep sea mining about to occur. So you've now moved from the weird spooky deep sea to, ooh, there's a lot of money to be made here. We're following in the footsteps of what the geosciences have already had to deal with. Well, the reimagining of the subterranean environment has led to a sort of cultural disparity because people are feeling really anxious because they don't like the idea that scientists or industry are tampering with the nature between their feet, right? You're messing with stuff that is supposed to be solid. 
If you think about things like fracking and carbon capture storage, geothermal exploitation or burial of nuclear waste or whatever it is, people are quite rightly concerned, right? They're really, really into this. And this is where storytelling becomes quite a big deal because in the deep sea you have this almost subconscious fear-led apathy towards the deep sea, whereas in the subterranean you have this very conscious fear that leads to anxiety and almost distrust, right? Because what the geosciences are is there's lots of papers written on this and there's no equivalent papers written in marine science as far as I can tell. There's a few sort of shallower ones, but certainly not deep sea ones. In that a lot of the time the concepts that are being explained are not being explained well. It's freaking people out. The issue with storytelling there is that there's a sort of want for how to reshape those stories, how to take something that is unbelievably complicated and try and tell that story in a way that can be easily digestible and to appease any concerns that people have or, or try and make people feel better about it. I, mean, there was, I read a paper and there, was, and there was a survey about what people felt was going on in the geosciences and they, there's a general consensus that they thought carbon capture storage meant there was giant high-pressure bubbles forming underground that could explode at any minute. And of course, that's not the case. But that's how it comes across if you don't tell the story properly. So I see lots of parallels here with Deep Sea, except for the fact that geosciences are trying to take something which they know is phenomenally complicated and need to streamline that down through storytelling into something more digestible to stop people feeling anxious or, or even distrustful of the industry. And then the flip side of that, you've got Deep Sea people and the way in which the Deep Sea is being portrayed is just far too simple it's, it's, and, and people don't really care. This elements there that you need to meet in the middle. Where the commonality is between these two issues is not the science. It's not what the geosciences are doing. It's not what deep sea science is doing. It's not what marine biology is doing. It's the storytelling. That's the most important part. That's what binds all that together. Today, we are privileged to have a New York Times best-selling author on our show, and that is Susan Casey. And Susan has written books on a whole load of ocean-related topics from The Wave, Devil's Teeth, Voices in the Ocean, and she's currently writing a book on the deep sea, which is how we first crossed paths. So Susan joins us from upstate New York. Hello, Susan. Hello. Hi. So first of all, I want to ask that your books clearly have oceans as a central theme. Is that something you deliberately set out to do, to, to write books about the oceans, or... Is that a bit of a coincidence or do you feel like one led on to the other? Well, you know, the thing about books is you get a story that tells you that it wants to become a book. It's a good enough story that you can write 300 and whatever pages about it. And it so happens that the first story I came across that sort of morphed into a big enough story that I thought, hmm, this is a book, was a really ocean-centric story. And once I got into that, that was book was called The Devil's Teeth, and it was about a neighborhood of great white sharks and these very uh, idiosyncratic scientists that were studying in, in these weird, weird islands that are 27 miles due west of the Golden Gate Bridge. They're just kind of sitting out off the coast of San Francisco. And as I began to report that story, I learned more and more about the ocean. But as I hung out with these scientists and spent time on these islands and learned more about the sharks, it just sort of grew. It really snowballed. I mean, to me, it was just endlessly fascinating. And that's kind of job one when you're writing a book is to find something that you are so fascinated and so passionate about that the reader will feel that and hopefully come along for that ride. So that's how it started. It's funny because those islands are really ominous looking, aren't they? Just the, the topography of them looks quite frightening. And then you put you add the sharks into the mix as well. And it's, it's, it's mad that that's all just sat off California. It looks like something's made up for a movie, right? Oh, absolutely. That's why they're called the Devil's Teeth. The funny thing about the title is people think it might relate to the sharks, but it's actually the islands themselves. They just sort of jut out of the water like fang. And they're, you know, they're on a different tectonic plate than the mainland. So they're geologically, they're even different. And when you go out there in a boat and you see these things kind of just shearing out of the water, 
you just think, how can this possibly be related to, I don't know, like Union Square in San Francisco? It's like you're on another planet, really. Is it the sort of natural environment of the, the topography of islands or the ocean itself, or is it the marine life that captivates you? Or is this all about this complex interplay between people and how they interact with the oceans, how they interact with things like these islands and all the marine fauna as well? I mean, is, is it are the oceans just a backdrop or are they a kind of almost a character in your stories? Oh, it's definitely a character and it's really all of the above, I think. I mean, my interest it has always been in water, it, period. Like I can't remember a time when I didn't look at a body of water and just want to know what was down there. I mean, you recently did a sub-dive, right? You've been down off, was it the Bahamas or something, in a, mm -hmm. the Triton submarine? Can you tell us about that? Oh, I went down um, uh, on with Tim McDonald, who was training to be a sub-pilot, and it was just sublime. It was the most sublime experience. And I had been a scuba diver and a free diver, but of course, that's, you know, nothing. And it's hard to put it into words. I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Was it what you expected? It was even more spectacular than what I expected. I wasn't scared for one second. I mean, even though there's something inherently risky about it, it's well thought out. The machines are amazing. But it sort of proved this theory that I have that you can't be scared when you're fully in the present moment. And fear is really something that comes up afterwards when you think, oh my God, what did I just do? Or that could have turned out badly. But when you're in the present moment, it, it really is just awe. And um, the thing that maybe I noticed the most was the fact that it's not space. It's got volume. It's got mass. Everywhere you look, there's life. So it's this three-dimensional environment that's really just teeming with life. It's not like looking up in the air. You could feel the fact that it was it was a presence, you know, the, all the weight of the water and everything that was alive in it and all the specks that come down that sort of look like they might just be detritus or marine snow. I mean, some of them are just detritus, but a lot of them are alive. And some of the fishes that you see that are held up to be like, oh, look at the monstrous teeth on this one. They're like the size of a quarter, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you see them in person and you think, oh, my God, these are the cutest little things. And, and all the, the light show. I, I mean, I had read William Beebe's book, of course, the guy who was brave enough to seal himself up into a steel ball and drop into the twilight zone on a cable. He was, I guess, would you agree, the first one to sort of see bioluminescence? Yeah, yeah, certainly those types, yeah. You know, and how he had written about those lights and almost like a poet. He had really had a lot to say about the color blue and the way the light worked in the water and the, the way the animals used bioluminescence. And, you know, it sort of must have felt to him like being on a real acid trip. And that's a little the way it felt to me as well. It's funny because it is really immersive. I don't think from watching on TV or, or even video, you get that feeling of the three-dimensionalness of the whole thing. You're not being asked to look at this particular object or this target. It is all of it. It is all of it. All your senses are trying to soak up all of the stuff that's going on, not a narrator on TV saying, look at this animal, and there's other stuff going on in the background. Because I've been trying to think about what, what the difference is, and it's things like that. It's stuff that doesn't translate well in, in digital media. Yeah, you can't feel, it's the feeling of it. And that's why one of the things I really want to capture about this experience is how important it is, I think, for people to continue to go down into the environment. Like robots are great. And I did some reporting with Jason, the burly ROV that does a lot of work in the deep. And it was funny because sitting on the ship was Alvin, which is the U.S. Navy in Woods Holes, man submersible that a lot of scientists use in the U.S. And all the pilots that were flying Jason, you could tell they were sort of a little depressed that they didn't get to get into Alvin. And I think all the tools are really important, but there's just something about the human imagination and the actual experience 
of going into that environment that teaches you something about it that really goes beyond, I think, the intellect and more into the realm of emotional or, you know, I would go so far as to say spiritual. You mentioned William Beebe. I read a, an article recently about him, and the article was, was about why is he not more famous for his scientific output than he is for his storytelling. And they were talking about, have you ever heard of the Sagan effect? When Carl Sagan, the, the famous astronomer who, who did loads of TV stuff in the 80s and everything else, and he was an absolutely unbelievable scientist. But the Sagan effect is where your peers devalue your real scientific contribution if you spend too much time on TV. Yeah, I think that's definitely true in BB's case. But also, there's, I think there's always a little bit of jealousy, too. Because, it, you know, he had to raise money and he was able to raise money because he had this sort of swashbuckling profile and he was in New York City in the mix. And, and, and at the same time, you know, he was making up names for the stuff he saw, like the, the untouchable bathosphere fish and the five fin constellation fish. And I think that drove a lot of ichthyologists kind of crazy, you know? Yeah, he's probably too, storytelling a little too far. I just, I just thought the whole story was really interesting. I mean, both the Carl Sagan and the William Beebe one about people who are, you know, really, really well accomplished scientists who have decided, made a conscious decision to step forward and say, I'm going to tell people about this. I'm going to write books. I'm going to go on TV. I'm going to do all this kind of stuff. And then they're almost punished by their own industry for doing that. I mean, the, the scientific works of Sagan and Beebe are huge. You know, that's not what they're famous for. Their legacy is almost almost a caricature of, of the scientists, which I think is, is really sad. Maybe we shouldn't do podcasts. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I sort of want to push back on that because to me, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I spend a lot of time with scientists. And as a writer and as a journalist, this should be within my realm of possibilities to be able to sit down and talk to somebody and learn about their work and hopefully act as a bridge to somebody else who's not a scientist. Yeah. What great stories don't involve science these days? And so the, the same mind, the same brilliant mind that can maybe understand the, the science is not necessarily the same kind of mind that's going to tell a rip-roaring story. And both of those things are important. You know, I think it would be helpful, and particularly maybe right now when there's this weird relationship that people seem to have with science, to make it more accessible at the same time and making damn sure it's accurate and it represents the science correctly. But I believe there's really a role for that. And sometimes you see it when scientists are particularly good communicators like you guys. What I hope to do anyway is chew it down to the point where anybody could understand, it. you know, a 14-year-old could understand it, but it's still true. Yeah, that's quite an art form though, isn't it? Well, it takes a lot of work um, and you have to come across the scientists who are willing to take the time to really explain it to you. I mean, I, I remember when I was trying to understand wave science, so, you know, how does a rogue waveform? It's really complicated, it involves quantum mechanics. I remember seeing this one scientist write an equation. I, I just thought this looks like chickens stepped in ink and walked all over a whiteboard. Like it was just this crazy equation. But, you know, by the end of the evening, I had the guy explaining it to me using sock puppets. And eventually you talk to enough people, you find somebody who's good at explaining it, then you can take a stab at writing it in a different way. And then, of course, the most important thing is that you circle back around and make sure the way you've written is, is exactly right. I remember once being um, told off by one of my bosses a long time ago, I used the phrase dumbing it down. And I'll never forget it. He turned to me and said, never use the phrase dumbing it down. It's about pitching to the right audience. It's two very different things. You're not dumbing it down. You're just pitching it better. And yes, what's wrong with being super clear? I'm also an editor. And one of the things that, you know, you look at academic writing and you, I, my hands just twitch wanting to edit it. It's needlessly complicated a lot of the times. And there's obviously lots of things that are important about writing it a certain way. 
But there's also a way to structure a sentence so that it's clear, as opposed to it's just a little bit more convoluted, so you think you sound smarter. So uh, along those lines, I mean, how far into this science do you go? Because we spoke to Alex Gould recently, the artist. She was talking about she didn't want to go too far into the science because she felt it ruined the magic. You know, I think I can't possibly get everything, but I want to get as much as I can. So there's always a place where I have to stop. I think there's an important distinction. I find it endlessly fascinating. So I could take a very deep dive, but how much of it can I really include? But in order to actually make that distinction, what is important, what isn't, what is super cool that I think people will find, you know, something they didn't know, but it will delight them. In order to make that decision, I have to know as much as I can. And I want to make sure that if I describe it in some very simplistic way, that that is actually accurate. It's not like misleading or, or wrong. I've always thought that what's the first thing you tell your mate Dave when you meet him in the pub after you've been away? Do you tell him about the statistical correlation you've just found between X, Y, and Z? Or do you tell him about some ridiculous thing where you nearly got pulled off the back of a boat? <laughs> you, know, you tell him the story, you don't tell him the science. So I sometimes think I'm going the other way. Maybe that's why our paths crossed. That's right. That's right. And that's why we can have <laughs> conversations because that's exactly what I try to do. I don't think the average person, like the, my book, The Wave, it's really a book about how climate change is affecting the oceans. You know, there's no way I'm going to set out to write a book about how climate change is affecting the oceans. I really want to tell the story, which you could do through characters, you do through narrative, you do through adventure in order to keep them turning the pages of a book. You have to earn their time. And the way you do that is by telling a story and making them care about the characters and something like that. And they've learned a bunch of interesting stuff about the science, but it's almost like I sneak it in. It's the adventure that keeps them interested. It's the people, the emotions they feel when they're experiencing, however vicariously, some crazy adventure. People are interested in people. This brings us back to that question that you're so fascinated by and I'm so fascinated by. Why don't people care about the deep ocean? Because they can't project themselves into that environment so easily, right? Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's anything in it for them. Yeah, it's just over there. I don't get to see it. I can't go there. Okay, this is the largest habitat on Earth. Something goes wrong down there. If the chemistry changes in some dire way, like, believe me, it will affect you. But how do you get that across to people, you know, and how do you do it in such a way that it's just not like this spooky house of horrors or threat or a cautionary tale, basically? I think that this this line, there is actually a line drawn in the sand, and that line is the 200-meter mark, the 200-meter contour, where it's the sea. And then you draw this line at 200 meters, but everything else is deep sea. So it's like, this is the bit that you like, this is the bit you can swim in, this is the bit that you get food from, and you can go on cruises and dive and jet ski on and all this bit. Everything below this line I've drawn is weird, and it's it's not for you. It's somewhere else. It's it's dark, it's dangerous, it's weird. And I think that's that's the issue. You're actually told this is a different place now. And then can then complain and say, why don't people care about the deep bit? Because you made it weird. <laughs> We've talked about this before as well. It's like there, there are sort of um, narrative cliches almost. Like, yeah. isn't this scary? Everybody thinks it's scary. Well, yeah. wait a minute. I happen to think it's kind of magical. There's a, there's a story that gets told over and over and over again. There are words that come up over and over again. Well, what would happen if you tried to tell that story with a different vocabulary? That starts to become really interesting to me. I mean, certainly when, when I got a glimpse of it, as I was coming back up, the thing that I felt more than anything was grief. I just didn't want to get out. And, you know, I don't know if everybody feels this way. Maybe some people with claustrophobia would have been clawing at the ceiling. But I just thought time went, went all elastic. And, and as I was coming up, that's the closest thing I can equate it to is that I just felt like I was being ripped away from what felt to me like more like home than land has ever felt. 
And if you want to know why I write about the ocean, that's probably why, because I really feel more at home in water than I do on land. It's funny in the sense of time you're talking about in the sub many dives we've done, you know, on every dive we do, you have to phone the surface every 50 minutes and say you're okay and report your death and so on and so on. I think probably almost every dive we've lost track of, of whether or not we call back or not. Yeah. Because 50 minutes just goes in a flash. You're like, did we just do that call or not? It's like, and we look at the clock and it's quarter past the hour and you go, oh, we shouldn't call in. It's like, didn't we just do that? Yeah. And it's just because you're looking out the window and you're like, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. There's this. You know, and I think you're just sensory overload, kind of really immersed in it that you, you've no idea. There has been times where I think we've come back and we hit every 15 minute call. But if you'd asked me, I would have said we've missed a lot. <laughs> but you're just sort of into it. So moving on, you're writing a book about deep sea right now. Was it a particular point, a particular event or conversation or something that took you from your last project to that almost, uh, did you have an epiphany moment and went right deep sea, that's where it's at? And going back to the devil's teeth again, it was the water out there at the Farallon Islands was this unbelievable, like to call this inscrutable water. Like it's not this clear stuff that you can see through to the bottom, it's black. And so we'd be sitting in this little research boat and these 18 foot great white sharks would suddenly emerge out of the water. And it, it also is this place where all these currents sort of collide and these islands are the edge of a tectonic plate. So they plunge something like two miles down to the abyssal plain right there. So there's all this upwelling. And I remember thinking, this is so cool. Like you never know what's going to pop up from below. And what is it like down there? What is it like in the part I can't see? That was when I started thinking about this idea of a parallel universe. So there's what we can see. And then there's this whole other world down there. So I was hoping and kind of assuming that the next book I would write would be really about the question, what's down there? But I quickly realized this didn't, it was too big a thing for me to bite off. So the fact that this is now my fourth book, and I, I've now been writing about the ocean for almost 20 years, only now do I feel like I can sort of tackle this. Well, that's it. I mean, as I said before, the deep sea is so huge. Most of the sea is deep sea. Yeah. I think it's 97% of the sea is, is classed as deep sea. So I've always been quite frustrated with books and articles and, and episodes of documentary series where they bundle it all up into one thing. And suddenly you get this whistle-stop tour of maybe 20 things, which is supposed to be representative of, of the entire 97% of the ocean. There's, there's enough material in the deep sea to do hundreds of articles or you know, almost hundreds of documentaries on because there are so many species and, and of such a variety of habitat and depth and seasonality stuff and everything else. It's just such a huge thing that it always gets this weird pigeonhole. I don't know if you have to have people feeling like all warm and cuddly about something in order to care about it enough to want to pay attention to it and maybe want it to thrive. But I do think they have to know about it and, and at least understand its importance and maybe have some sense of magic about it i mean for lack of a better word really it's like this is really cool stuff i think it's about trying to convince people to just get it and not see it as something which is quite entertaining you know you watch the tv series and there's a deep sea episode and it's, it's just it's almost like a horror movie it's that oh look at those things look at that or it's just got this massive cool factor that then just has no legacy whatsoever yeah it feels to say like yeah this is a massive cool factor but it's a, it's a real thing it's not an entertainment subject Brilliant. Thanks you very much, Susan. Thank that you. was brilliant. This sort of completes a series of podcasts. This this completes an arc we've been going on five episodes. Storytelling and journalism bridges that gap between that and the very hard and very dry science, which is quite characterless. So it inserts a character, it inserts a, a human you can experience these things through that gives you grounding. 
we're uh, social animals and we experience things through the eyes of other people. Good storytelling is, is inserting you into a character who is there and who's experiencing this so that you can get a little bit of that emotional element as well. You're still getting the facts, but now you fully accept the weight of those facts and you sort of can process that as the emotional animal that we all are. Hello, my name is Don Walsh. And for six decades, I've worked as an oceanographer and as an explorer. And I'd like to offer some comments on a subject I like to call the explorers and the storytellers. But first, let's look at what constitutes exploration. My definition of exploration is curiosity acted upon. That is, we observe something and we act on our curiosity about that something, and that's the first step of exploration. However, explorers tend to be rather singular people. Uh, most are not very good storytellers. What I'm talking about is communicating with people beyond our realm of exploration. The people, frankly, that do the offer the support and the sponsorship of exploration, whether they're individual persons, uh, foundations, not-for-profits, charities, or even governmental committees. The thing is, if they don't understand what we do or what we've done and where we did it and why it's important, then sources of support are hard to come by. And it's been my observation that many explorers are either not interested in writing for the unwashed public or do not enjoy sitting at a desk grinding out the results of their expeditions. In the former case, this is where the storytellers can come in and assist an explorer in telling his or her story so that future support might be gained. What's the reason for this? Well, most explorers uh, are solitary and supremely self-centered. The best are good or even great leaders, but like a captain of a ship, they have absolutely supreme authority as to who is in charge. Now let's consider the role that the storytellers play in their work with explorers. The idea of having someone on your expedition to uh, keep a record, a journal, if you will, of your work uh, is as old as exploration itself. And I'm not talking about the keeping of scientific records. That goes without saying. Any scientist in the field is going to keep a record of, of remarks and artifacts collected, but rather, who's telling the general story, the human interest story of an expedition? And that's the role of the storyteller. And that concludes this pressurized version of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to go into some more detail, you can find the full episode in the feed. Just match the episode numbers. We'll deep see you next time, and I abyss you already. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups.